0: Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player.
1: Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Alex London. Alex writes books for adults, including One Day the Soldiers Came, Voices of Children in War, as well as for children, dog tag series, an accidental adventure series, as well as teens, including Proxy. At one time, a journalist who traveled the world reporting from conflict zones and refugee camps, he is now a full-time novelist living in Philadelphia. Alex's most recent book, the third and final installment in his Skybound Saga series, "Gold Wings Rising," is in stores now. Alex, how are you? Really excited to have you on the show. Thanks. I'm excited to chat with you. You know, I feel like that "how yeah. are you" question
2: is so vivid, especially. <laughs> especially for a podcast where you can't see my face and see my sort of
1: like resigned shrug I feel like how we're all kind of doing right. Which brings me to the beginning of the podcast where we asked about where you are and then kind of transition into recent times, quarantine, and all that. So first off I mentioned in your bio, happening to know that you're in Philadelphia, but I know you also were in Brooklyn for a while. So can you walk us through where you are now, how you landed there and how location ties in for you now? Yeah.
2: It's actually kind of tied to my books, too. I'm very much a person who believes place is a character, both in life and in, in fiction. So, I, my husband and I lived in Brooklyn in Sunset Park for years, and we were starting a family. And it just hit us a couple years ago that why are we here? He's a teacher, so he could, you know, if he could find a job at a school somewhere else, we could live anywhere. I wasn't exactly ready to leave New York, he was kind of done with it. And we realized his life could be easier elsewhere. So we started looking around and he found a great job at a great school in Philly and kind of dragged me along. Um, But it grew on me. I went from having an office that was kind of squeezed into a closet to now I have an office with a couch and a fireplace in it. So I'm sitting at a big desk with a fireplace behind me and the couch and a view over the trees. And sometimes there's a hawk that perches in the tree right outside my office. So, I do not regret the move <laughs> to Philadelphia at all. I gained trees and grass, and it's been extremely helpful during the quarantine to have a yard to go out into. We have a two and a half year old, so she could run around in the yard during all of this. And before our, our dog passed away recently, but before that, he had a yard he could go into and run around. And so, it's
1: been just great for my mental health during all of this time. As far as the writing process in general, obviously, writing is a solitary experience usually. You mentioned that you're now in a kind of larger space with a backyard, all that stuff. You were in Brooklyn with much smaller spaces, I imagine. But from a writing perspective, how has quarantine affected you between being stuck in one place regardless of the size of the space and also just hearing you know, everything that's going on? Has it affected you much or has it left you otherwise kind of unaffected?
2: I mean, even before quarantine, I had mental health struggles so it certainly hasn't helped (laughs) those and it's been weird it was definitely as it i think has been for a lot of people especially a lot of writers the hardest year so far of my life creatively i felt like it was extremely just draining emotionally i felt like i was never getting enough done managing between the toddler and my husband being a teacher from home so my office actually turned into his classroom and i went back to a closet (laughs) for a little while And just the news cycle and the stress of everything, going to the grocery store, worrying about my parents, certainly drained me. And I felt like I was getting nothing done and I was failing at everything. And then I looked back just recently on the year I had in terms of what I'd been producing and I realized I had, in that time, finished the revision and then came out with Gold Wings Rising, the last book in the Skybound Saga, which started with Blackwing's Beating and then the second book, Red Skies Falling. So I finished a trilogy that had been years in the making. I wrote and revised the first book in a new middle grade series called Battle Dragons, which we can talk about in a sec, and just finished the second book in that series and wrote two screenplays and two short stories. And I looked back at that massive output, which is more than normal for me, and thought, what? How did that happen? I didn't have as many hours in the day. I was exhausted all the time. Eating poorly and drinking too much. (laughs) And I thought how am I doing any of that during, you know, toddler nap times? What? And I realized that writing had become a way of escaping for me from all the stress of what was going on. And so I don't know if I wrote well. I'm sure some of my writing was absolutely disastrous. There's a short story I finished that I know the draft is terrible and I have a lot of work to do to revise it. But just being able, if I could get into a flow to just step out of our world for a little while and be in control somewhere, you know? when you're inventing a world and inventing a characters, you know, they take over a bit. But ultimately, like, you're the writer. You're in control of what they do and say and the world they live in. And that was a great escape from this world where I felt kind of in control of nothing. <laughs> and so I sort of, I was shocked by the productivity. And I think it was, I don't know if it was healthy or not, but it was my coping mechanism it was just words and stories and just
1: pouring out stories of all kinds as much as possible. Love that. While we're talking about writing during you know, these times, how things are affected, obviously a lot of writers are affected. Do you have words of wisdom for those who are listening, who maybe are struggling right now? The writers block all yeah. the things that are going on. Are there words of wisdom or maybe some cheat codes, so to speak, to kind of yeah. get through? I've published 25 books, written
2: 27, 28 that will be published across all genres and age groups. And all I have learned in all of that is none of us have a clue what we're doing. And every book is different and every writer is different. And Great advice for one person is terrible advice for someone else. So I wouldn't presume to like give advice. All I have really learned is to be kind to oneself, find what works for you. And if it doesn't work, if it's torture, then that probably isn't how you should be writing. That probably isn't your creative process. I don't think pain and torture and agony is a necessity for art. I think that is a lie we've been sold. And if you're in agony, then maybe part of your process isn't working and it's okay to let go of those pieces of your process that are hellish for you. That is also easy to say, and I don't always take that advice. Finishing this Skybound saga, this last book in the trilogy, was extremely hard for me. It's a series about trauma and healing and forgiveness and both on a personal level and a societal level, and it's also a pretty brutal story about giant killer birds. And I had to process a lot of personal trauma and societal trauma in order to write it. And it was extremely difficult and brutal to get through that process, especially finishing it You know, now in our political environment, even before the pandemic. And so I didn't take my, I beat myself all the time about it. So it's also, I also wouldn't presume to even give the advice I just gave, but finding ways To let yourself off the hook if your writing isn't perfect, if you're not producing as much as you think you should, if your drafts don't land where you want, when you want, just letting yourself know that's okay. Your worth as a human is not measured by your creative productivity. There are terrible people who are extremely productive and there are great people who never finish a thing. And that's fine. We attach all this moral weight to it that we don't mean to and just hold your process lightly and hold yourself gently and you'll find a way through.
1: Loosen your grip, and maybe you'll be okay. Love that. Before we get into your process, I would love to hear your origin story, career trajectory leading up to this point. So I mentioned earlier, I know you were in Brooklyn. Can you walk us through, A, did you always want to be a writer? B, were you always based in New York? Kind of walk us through those early days and how you got to this point now.
2: Yeah, so I started to want to be a writer around sixth grade when I realized that was a thing, I wasn't much of a reader. I kind of only became a reader because I realized I wanted to write. And I only realized I wanted to write because I love making up stories and I always got in trouble for it. And my fifth and then sixth grade teacher kind of pushed me to start writing them down instead of just distracting my friends with them in class. And I really stank at it and I had to learn how to write by reading. And so that got me hooked on it. And then I, I wrote a fan letter to Brian Jakes, who wrote The Red Wall Books. You remember those, talking mouse fantasy things, and he wrote me back and encouraged me to keep using my imagination, so that maybe I could grow up to be a writer one day. And that blew my mind, realizing that that was an option, and that there was this famous adult from over in England where writers were from, apparently, in my head at the time. And he was telling me that my imagination was valid and that using it as a job was was an option. And so from that point on, I knew I wanted to be a writer. I didn't know what kind of writer, you know. In high school, I wanted to be some kind of like deep poet type. And then college, I wrote a lot of really pretentious short stories. They were terrible. So I I cast around a bit. And I was also, I'm a procrastinator. So I I needed to learn how to write to a deadline. And journalism was great for that for me. So I started, I did an internship at Rolling Stone. And I knew I wanted to live in New York because I had that romantic notion. So I went to college in New York and I did an internship at Rolling Stone. Kind of discovered journalism through that and spent about five years as a a freelance journalist and human rights researcher for an organization called Refugees International. And I don't know how or why they trusted me, but they did. And so I got to travel the world to some, some pretty rough places and meet all kinds of people, specifically focusing on young people who were going through some very serious, intense stuff in different war zones and refugee camps around the world and documented their lives and their struggles and the things they needed and wanted and was able to turn that into a tiny bit of a freelance career and then eventually wrote a book about the young people I met. That was my first book. I thought I was going to go in the whole like nonfiction route. I wanted to be like a Sebastian Younger type, the way. Like go into war zones and write these really uh, heavy, intense things. And I wrote two books based on nonfiction books for adults, kind of around my travels to all of these places and got burned out very quickly. I could barely make a living and it was exhausting and I was dealing with PTSD stuff and just all kinds of, it just wasn't working. But my boyfriend at the time, now my husband, worked in children's books. So our house, our apartment was just filled with children's books that I picked up and started reading and remembered how Brian Jakes and how those Redwall books inspired me and set me on this path. And I thought, well, I want to stop documenting all the horrible things the world can do to kids. And I want to maybe start just trying to write for them instead of about them. Try and entertain them. So I wrote my first series called The Accidental Adventure Series, which are absolutely silly middle-grade novels about kids who have these exciting, adventurous lives all over the world because their parents are famous explorers, but they want nothing to do with adventure and excitement. They just want to watch television and be left alone. They're like extremely boring kids having very exciting lives. And they were very silly. I didn't really know what to do with them. And it was random luck that an editor at Penguin wanted to try and turn my book about child soldiers to do a kids' version of them. And we worked together for a little while trying to make that happen. It didn't work out. But when it all fell apart, she said, Hey, have you ever thought of writing children's books? And I was luckily I had, and I had a manuscript ready to go. And I said, Yeah, I have actually. And Jill Santopolo is her name. And she had faith enough in that series and that vision. There were four books. We ended up doing 10 books together. She did my first young adult novel, Proxy. We did a lot of books together, and through that, I just became a part of the children and young adult literature community, which led me to write some books for Scholastic and then Macmillan with my new series. So I just I found my place. Really, I felt like children and young adult literature was where I was headed. I just didn't know it, and it became it really was my calling. So it was it was not a planned journey, but it was mostly luck and happenstance, and then a lot of work to take advantage of the opportunities I was I was lucky enough to have. Love
1: that. Alex, before we start, uh, I would love to discuss the overall theme. Originally, I thought we could talk, *Goldwing's Rising, obviously, we should definitely focus on that. This is the most recent book. But it might be cool to talk about writing a trilogy in general. Are you cool to kind of school us on that process? Or yeah. to the best of your ability? I've written middle-grade trilogy
2: and uh, a couple of quadrologies and duology and then this, this latest epic fantasy trilogy. So, yeah, I guess I, guess I can share I don't know anything. Is oddly what I know. It's really hard. I don't know that I'd do it again. You know, three books, you know, each book has to, I feel like, stand on its own and be dramatically fulfilling, but also they're part of a larger story that kind of has its own three-act structure. So you've got this like fractal where each book, I tend to think in a three-act structure. So each book has its act and then each book is itself an act. And it's a lot to balance. And you end up, it's hard, <laughs> basically. I don't know what wisdom I have. I think. The zooming out idea is kind of what kept me going when I started the trilogy, the Skybound Saga in Blackwing's Beating. It's a very personal story between this brother and sister and their kind of emotional arc as they deal with this epic quest they're on and these giant killer birds and this. You can sense there's things at the edges of their lives growing political troubles in this world, but it's very much their relationship and how the stressors of this fantasy world and these giant mythic killer birds called the ghost eagles Impact them, and then in book two we get sort of a zoom out, and we start seeing the political machinations and how their personal journeys are part of a larger societal journey. And then book three is that simultaneously a zoom in and zoom out how what we established emotionally for them in book one and politically for them in book two need to kind of achieve synthesis in book three for that the journey cannot be completed until both the personal and political are somehow completed or resolved. So the emotional journey and the larger societal journey are explored in two separate books that are then woven together to realize there is no difference between them in the third book, if that makes sense. So it's you're weaving these braids and or juggling plates. (laughs) I'm not sure what the right metaphor is here. It's, It's a lot.
1: Alex, are you cool with me reading, just for the audience context, a quick description of both the trilogy as well as the newest book? Yeah, please do. Just make it sound awesome. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. Oh, man. <laughs> I will do my
0: worst. Here we go. The Skybound Saga,
1: Alex London's young adult fantasy Skybound Saga, is the story of Bryson and Kylie, brother and sister, twins who come from a family of falconers. Their talents with birds of prey may be the last best hope people of Ustar have against the tide of war threatening their land. The quote epic thrills, heart-punching romance, and a marvel of a hero. That's New York Times bestselling author Adam Silvera on Black Wings beating. And then I've got to the description for the newest book, which is In Goldwings Rising, the final installment of Alex London's Skybound Saga. Kylie and Bryson must fight for their lives and their humanity. Book one was a Today Show book club pick. The war on the ground has ended, but the war, this guy, has just begun. After the siege of the six villages, The ghost eagles have trapped Ustaris on both sides of the conflict. Villagers and Kartami alike hide in caves, huddled in terror as they await nightly attacks. Kylie aims to plunge her arrows into each and every ghost eagle. In her mind, killing the birds is the only way to unshackle the city's chains. But Bryson has other plans. While the humans fly familiar circles around each other, the ghost eagles create schemes far greater and more terrible than either Kylie or Bryson could have imagined. Now the tug of war between love and power begins to fray, threatening bonds of siblinghood and humanity alike. Very cool stuff. So this book, the most recent book in the trilogy, before we even get into the process, just came out. How are you feeling about it? You know, it's hard to release a book during a global pandemic. So, you know, I
2: feel good. I'm very proud of the book. I feel like it speaks. There's a lot of themes that it ends up speaking to that I think we're dealing with in our world, political healing and reconciliation and accountability from gruesome violence, and I'm proud of how it dealt with those things. And as a series, it is the kind of queer epic fantasy that I always wished existed when I was a young queer myself. So I'm very proud of all of that. In terms of how the market's doing, I have no idea. I would be lying if I said I didn't think about that stuff. I'm aware you know, it's not knocking the roof off the publisher or anything. It's difficult to know how a book is doing in the marketplace these days. But I'm very proud of,
1: of the series, and I hope readers enjoy it and enjoy what I built with it for them. Walk us through, I mean, you briefly went into the breakdown of how a trilogy has acts and the, the books within them have their own acts. But from the very beginning, the inception, did you always set out to create a trilogy? Did you know that going into this that you wanted to do, you know, these three books and had this world? Walk us through those early, early phases of taking an idea and flushing it out into, okay, this is, I want this to be a greater thing and be multiple books and really landing on that idea and deciding to kind of move forward with it. Yeah, I wish I planned better than I do. I always want to be a planner, and I'm not.
2: And so the idea came to me on a flight to the Philippines for a book event where I just got fascinated with falconry and then linking it to queer desire. And that became kind of an operable metaphor for it. And I I built this plot kind of. I sort of knew I knew the emotional arcs of the characters. I knew where I wanted them to go in the first book. And I knew the world. I got a sense of the world I wanted to build based around birds of prey. But beyond that, I didn't have much of a plan. And I, I actually thought it was one book. I didn't think I was gonna write a trilogy. I had written a bunch of series by that point and was like, I just want to write a standalone, really big fantasy. And We went out with sample chapters for it to a couple publishers who wanted to work with me because we thought, hey, let's try it. And the editor who really got it the most and understood me the most and came up with the most money in the end told me it was a trilogy. She said, this is an epic fantasy trilogy. This is, you're clearly doing epic fantasy, you clearly influenced Lord of the Rings is in there. This is a trilogy. And I went, oh, is it? Okay. And she said, so think about how you're going to do that, because here's an offer, and you're going to accept it. And I did. (laughs) Um, And then I had to come up with a plan. And I actually, using the circling of birds of prey, weirdly, told me the structure, that zooming out thing I mentioned. I was actually watching as I was daydreaming about it one day, a hawk hunting and sort of catching the different contours in the air and flying higher and higher up in these, ever widening circles seeing the same ground over and over again from different points of view and that i kind of wanted to do something with that in the trilogy so the plot the characters are kind of circling the same ground in different ways and in different combinations with different goals and different emotional baggage on them and when i realized that that kind of unlocked the series for me but the plot was never all that clear and i Wish I was an outliner because I ended up having to rewrite, especially the third book, you know, two or three times before I finally got it right. And it was torture. <laughs> it was torture doing that. Kids, if you're gonna write a trilogy, outline it first. I was having the most trouble finishing it. It was an author named Victoria Schwab who uh, yelled at me. She was like, "How does it end?" And I was like, "I don't know." She's like, "Well, you need to figure that out." And she like forced me to tell her how it ends so that I could work backwards to actually be able to finish it. And that was the key for me to getting through the trilogy it was knowing how the trilogy ends so i highly recommend going in with a plan to spare yourself a whole lot of misery i did not go in with a plan
1: in regards to that you mentioned you're not an outliner you kind of just described how you had to ultimately work backwards which is usually when someone's working on the outline i think one of the biggest goals is to set that okay where are we leading to where are we building to for you since you said you originally didn't have an outline how did you navigate were you just kind of pantsing so to speak. I know that's the term for those Mm. who don't outline. But can you walk us through your process if you didn't have an outline? Because I know a lot of people say they they don't.
2: Yeah. So I do, and I mean, I'm also a liar, so I say I don't have an outline, but I kind of have it. (laughs) So I had certain plot beats I knew I wanted to hit, whether they were things I knew I wanted to happen because they were cool or important incidents or emotional beats I knew I had to get to somehow. And so I make a lot of lists of those sorts of things, often then drawing arrows around, be like, "Oh, I could do this here and do that here." So I. And certain signposts that could guide me. So, when I'm getting lost in my, you know, flying by my seat of my pants writing, I could be like, oh, wait, no, I'm trying to get these two characters to different physical places in the world of the story by this point. So, let me get back and focus on making that happen. Or, I need them to have a fight, like a yelling at each other and bring up this thing from their past at this point. So, let me refocus and get back there. And then I kind of re outline as I go or re list as I go. So, if I discover something one day in the writing, I then can kind of plan ahead in the next chapter or two or three. And so it's, I've heard it described as a headlights writer, where you can only see as far as your headlights, which I think is probably more accurate for my process. So I know a little bit ahead. And then occasionally there'll be a flash of inspiration and I'll know the end point I'm headed towards, but I still can only see a few chapters ahead. I have outlined books in the past also. I did some books for the 39 Clues series for Scholastic, and those had to be very detail outlines because they weren't my characters. It wasn't my IP. And I had to submit them for approval ahead of time before they would let me start writing the draft to get paid for. And I found that a really delightful process. And I've done some screenwriting recently. And you also have to outline forever and get notes on your outline from the studio executives and back and forth and back and forth. And I also then found the actual act of drafting really easy once I had that outline. So I found in writing this trilogy without a quote unquote outline, Basically, my first draft was my outline. It was just a very elaborate, slow, painful way of making an outline. And I think if I, if I could go back and do it again or for my next books, I will actually make, spend the time and go through the agony making an outline before I actually draft. Because that first draft is basically just a really, really detailed, well-written outline. And it'd be better to skip all that agony and just make an outline and then make my first draft a first draft. But it really is. Finding some of the beats. I'd be lost if I, didn't, if I didn't know who my characters were and what emotional beats I wanted them to hit. I couldn't write a word. So I have that planned out, just in a
0: notebook. and just make lists. We have a lot of writers on this podcast. Do you like what writers write? Do you like free stuff? Well, Audible is offering a free audiobook download for listeners of The Writer Experience Podcast with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I recently downloaded James Joyce's Ulysses for my commutes into the city, while our producer Harry, who may or may not exist, has been enjoying J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash writerexperience. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash writerexperience for your free audiobook.
2: What's your favorite film of all time? It might be a sophisticated classic a childhood favourite or an enjoyable pile of trash you just can't help but watch over and over again. The Pick of the Flicks podcast, hosted by me, Tom Beasley, is all about celebrating people's favourite movies in whatever form they take. Each week, I interview a different guest about their chosen favourite, whether I agree with their choice or think they're as mad as one of Tom Hardy's accents. So tune in to Pick of the Flicks every week on the Flickering Myth Podcast Network and subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Maybe your favourite film will be
0: next. Hi, I'm George, and I'm Sam, and we're from the That's a Classic podcast on the Flickr and Myth Network. We both bring three films each from a certain genre, and we battle it out to find out which is the ultimate classic. So you can listen to us on Flicker and Myth, iTunes, or Spotify. Check out what classic we choose every week.
1: You just mentioned knowing who your characters are. You beat me to my next question, which is about characters. Is there a process you go through to decide who the characters are? Is there a list? questions you ask yourself to truly get to know the characters and how do you kind of decide who they are and how does that affect plot?
2: Yeah, I mean, I would say character is more important than plot. No one cares about a plot unless they care about the character. For me, I, I like to know what my character wants, what they think they want. I like to know what their secret is, what their biggest, like deepest secret is. And I like to know what they're willing to do to get what they want. Or at least when it starts, what they think they're willing to do. So, sort of a desire, how badly they want what they want, and what secrets they have. And if I can start with there, then incidents and plot points can change those things and press on them. But if I know what their desires are, what their wounds are. So, I guess that's another thing I ask myself like, what are their wounds? Like, what hurt them? And that can also then, I can apply pressure to those points, and that can help advance the plot. And if the plot takes the lead over those things and gets out ahead of my character's desires or emotional journey. Often I feel like that's when I lose it and when I lose the thread of the book because it's not being driven forward by the character, it's being driven forward by me, the author, deciding what incidents need to happen. And it's much more effective writing, I think, when the character's desires or flaws drive the incidents that occur. So I will sometimes have to reverse engineer, like if I know, like, oh, I need this character to stab this guy in this scene or whatever. For example, it's a thing that happens a lot in epic fantasies. I then have to kind of reverse engineer, like, why does he have to stab that guy? What is it about that guy? And what is it about him that makes that stabbing inevitable, that is leading that blade to that guy's ribcage from page one? Why is that happening? Not just because I, the author, need him to do that for the next thing to happen. Often that's a back and forth, you know, as I write and revise those things clarifying.
1: But I have to have an idea to start with about you know what the character wants, what he needs, and what he's willing to do to get it, and then play with it from there. What about on the world building side? How much time do you spend in the beginning? I imagine it was a big part of the first book. But just in general, what's your process for world building, fleshing out what the world is? You know what the names are. All oh, of the names. Yeah. Names the worst to <laughs> figure out, especially. In-
2: epic fantasy novel. It's like, oh, course, God, yeah. do I have to make up more names? I love world building, though. <laughs> Actually, it's my favorite thing. And I spend a lot of time before I start writing thinking about the world building, thinking about the language, the culture, the manufacturing. Like, what items do they have and how are they made? and What are they made of? and What does that mean for where they come from? Thinking about what everyone in that world knows. Even if the things they know aren't true, what everyone knows, whether it's a joke or a saying or a fundamental pieces of fate, you know, everyone in the world knows that you know you don't go into the mountain because there's this giant killer bird that's going to rip you to shreds and everyone just knows that even though it's not precisely the case. So, knowing those things ahead of time. And then I do a ton of research depending on what the world I'm building is. You know, if I'm writing a historical novel, obviously I do a ton of research on the period. If I for a sci-fi novel, I do, you know, whatever things I think I'm going to need to know about based on the technology in that world that I'm writing or in the case of the Skybound saga, I did a lot of research on birds of prey and the training of birds of prey and falconry. And I actually got to do some falconry, which was really cool. And I do all that ahead of time so that when I'm writing, I have that base to draw on and all that pre thought so that I can just kind of roll with the characters and let all that work I did ahead of time just be you know, the water in which they're swimming and draw on the knowledge as I need it. And then often I'll run up against something I don't know or don't think I know, or I'm like, oh, it'd be really cool if I could have them in this place but I don't know anything about how that works so let me go do some more research on that and figure out what my characters need to know or observe about the world they're in to then convey to the reader again it's a push and pull process i go in with what
1: i think i need to know
2: about the world and then through the characters i discover other things that i want to know about the world i'm making or questions they have about the world that i didn't think to ask that something they do makes me realize some either flaw in the world that they've noticed that i haven't or something cooler than i originally thought of it, that then i can Play with for okay. example the ghost eagles themselves in the skybound saga i thought were one thing when i started writing and when i wrote the first book and then just in a weird moment they surprised me they did something that i hadn't expected that made them so much cooler and so much more complicated and interesting than they originally were in the planning and that changed the nature and i don't think it spoils anything to say i then had to go do a bunch of reading about lsd and human consciousness to draw on some of that research to do the new thing that I hadn't planned. So there's the element of surprise to making any art. You can plan a lot of stuff, but there is just magic that happens when you begin to create. And, you know, stories are smarter than the people who tell them. And so being able to listen to your story, I know that sounds weird and mystical, but I really believe it. That sometimes you will see connections that you didn't know you were making, but your story knew it was making. And
1: being open to that can lead you to really exciting places that you can't possibly plan for. You joked when I asked you about world building about name conventions. Can you walk us through just a brief process for how you come up with names? Obviously, you no. got come up with cities.
2: <laughs> it's weird; it comes from all different ways, and some are more deliberate than others. <laughs> so, in the Skybound saga. It was Tari people. There's a couple of different, you know, cultures, but these Tari people have Ys in their names in different places that originally I planned where the Y was in their name, like said something about what generation they were in. But I wasn't very disciplined about that and it all kind of fell apart, but I was then just kind of stuck with putting these Ys everywhere in people's names. It was irritating by the end of the series. I really look back and I'm like, I would not do it that way again. But by the time I realized how broken it was as a naming convention, first book. They're already been published, but there was no going back. So I wish I'd been a little more deliberate about that. Other things, and then some names just sounded cool, so I used them. But in other books of mine, I'm very detailed about why people have what name they have. For the proxy series, I spent forever thinking about every name and why it was assigned to the person who had it and what that said or didn't say about them. And there were within the world naming conventions that I figured out in detail, and they were quite complicated, and I really enjoyed that process. You know, it's part naming is part of culture, and if you're inventing cultures or transmitting cultures that exist in our world to readers, you have to do all that work of what is the cultural weight attached to these names, whether it's a made-up culture or a real culture. You can't go in ignorant. If you do, you end up in trouble with a bunch of names wise in them and that you're stuck with. So, taking naming seriously, I think is there's a reason writers agonize over it. And I definitely do agonize over it. Especially because now I feel like I've messed up. It's cool. I don't fully regret the names that these various of Starry Beatle had. I just think I, I fell down on the discipline of it in exchange for other things. You know, a book is a big thing and especially writing a book under deadline, you're juggling a lot of balls. And nobody keeps them all in the air perfectly. And so I feel like some of my naming conventions in the Skybound saga I dropped a little bit. <laughs> they're a little sloppy, even though they're kinda cool books I've dropped other balls again in my mission to be kinder to myself. I'm also
1: very aware of of the flaws. I love the honesty behind that too, because I think just as easily you could say, "Oh yeah, no, all of that was perfectly planned and exactly what we wanted." It's great to hear.
2: I mean, writers are generally process. You know, we're all describing our writing process. I think is always a little weird. We're describing something that's actually indescribable. So we look for ways to do it. And we look for metaphors that apply and headlights, writers and panthers and all these different ways of describing it. And all of them are true. And all of them are a lie. Everything contains pieces of everything else. And so I'm really I've become very skeptical of absolute certainty in anything with making art of any kind, because that kind of drains the magic from it. So while there's craft, you can learn and work hard at, and should do that. There's
1: magic too, and we have to be open to it. Love that. What about themes? When you go into writing a book, do you have a list of themes handy, or do you kind of no. come up with themes organically? Do those things kind of yeah, they surfaces they surfaces are right. They
2: surfaces are right. That has to be organic. I think if I can start with an idea, you know, I knew in the Skybound saga there would be themes about ambition and trauma and regret. But the book ended up having very different ideas than I thought it would about all those things in the beginning or in the proxy series. I knew that there would be a theme of debt and sort of hyper-capitalism run amok. And so those were kind of thematic concepts I knew I'd be playing with. But in terms of deciding kind of a verdict on them or having some sort of message with them, I think that's death. So I
1: try and avoid deciding what I feel about a theme until the book is done. Because I really think that's what belongs to the reader. What about finishing the book? Editing process, you know, you talked about writing it, but what about getting to a point where you've got a draft, but you've got to get the draft closer to a finished thing? What does that process look like? How many rounds and how much time is spent getting something to what feels like a perfect place?
2: I draft very quickly. I'm a big fan of vomit out the story. It doesn't have to be good. Just get it out on paper because the worst writing you ever do will be better than the best writing that you never do. So I dump it all out really fast. And then I revise. I actually really like revision because, again, I feel like that's where you start seeing the themes. That's where you start seeing the connections. That's where you start seeing the things your book knows that you didn't, that you don't know. And you start realizing, hey, this book is smarter than I am. And if it's not, then you probably have a problem somewhere else in it. I, as a writer, don't love writing books that feel really controlled. And I don't love reading books that feel like everything was just so tightly. It's like like a Swiss watch. I'd rather have a sundial. So I like a little chaos in that process. And revision is where you start seeing the magic of what the chaos can produce. And then tightening it and cleaning it and polishing it and make sure it actually you know, functions the way a book should, the way a story should. So I go through, it's a little different for every book, but I'd say on average, four or five rounds of revision. Before I show it to my editor, and then I'll usually do two with. And then copy editing, you know, there's that whole process that makes it neat and makes me sound smarter than I am, that the grammar is better than it is. So by the time all is said and done, you know, from my first draft on my computer to the book in your hands, it's probably been through anywhere from eight to 10 rewrites. And they're not all huge, like page one rewrites. Some of them are just tweak this or move this paragraph or delete this scene.
1: The sentences, but some of them are like, okay, this whole section doesn't work. Try something else. Alex, you have time for a couple bonus questions before we go.
2: Yeah, the toddler is sleeping,
1: <laughs> <laughs> the husband is also sleeping, the snow is falling. It's a lovely day for talking about writing. Love it. Could you tell us if you could choose any writer, living or dead, and any restaurant? We usually say fast food restaurant, but everyone always chooses not to. Was a fast restaurant. So we'll say restaurant. Any writer, any restaurant to take and to have a conversation about writing. Which writer would you choose which restaurant and why? Oh, This is so hard. First of all, because there's a pandemic, dude. We should not be eating in restaurants. You're the first person who's pointed that out. But, you know, <laughs> I think everyone is just craving that real human interaction that oh, we're pretending yeah. that it's possible. So this is the thing. I'm a big fan of
2: not meeting your heroes, having met some and been horribly disappointed and having met others and been horribly intimidated because they're even better than I could have imagined. It's terrifying to think. Again, I feel like art is smarter than the artist. So I sort of wouldn't want to meet any of my literary heroes. But I also, there's so many, it's like my brain, you just caused a 10 car pileup in my brain of people. Who do I say? Who do I say? Because I want to meet so many and I don't want to meet any of them. But the great thing about being a writer now and, and the writing community is that, so many writers I admire have also become friends. So in a way, it's also it'd just be a great excuse to get together with someone I like. So do I pick a friend? Just we could have a meal? That sounds great. I haven't seen my friends in so long because of this pandemic. But that seems like not the spirit of your question. See how I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm agonizing over this? I I actually can't pick a friend. I can run over someone else and will they get offended and I'm going to get all worried about it's that? True. It's, it's true. It's true. With anxiety. This is terrible. So I should probably pick someone who's dead because... They can't get offended.
1: You know, like a Tolkien, he's, uh,
2: you know, go He
1: go-to. seems like he to- <laughs>
2: though. Uh, he's been whole done talking about his grammars that he has. Just write the book. I have to admit, I'm not the
1: biggest Lord of the Rings fan, even though there is a lot in the Skybound saga that is homage to it. It's not necessarily a flattering homage.
2: my Just the whole era of deeply heterosexual epic fantasy really makes me sad because I just want to queer everything. So I guess to that end, I think, well, I mean, one of the great pioneers of queer sci-fi, Sam Delaney, I got to have dinner with him recently, but there were a lot of people there, so we really didn't get to chat. So it might be awesome to sit down with him uh, and talk about queer Oh, no, that answers. Ursula Le Guin. I would want to have a properly socially distanced meal with Ursula Le Guin. And what meal would I want to have? I think, was she a vegetarian? She feels like someone who's a vegetarian. So it would probably have to be a nice vegetarian meal. Really, she seems like she'd be a good cook. Maybe I want to go to her house and just, you know what, tea and cookies. I want to have tea and something sweet with Ursula Le Guin
1: on her porch. The last question, I know you at the beginning, you said it's tough to give advice to writers, aspiring writers. But what about if you had to choose one thing from your entire career as a writer so far? If you had to say one thing before you go, what's the one thing you'd say to the writers listening?
2: Remember that this is a gift that you give yourself the opportunity to write and tell stories and that you are giving your reader and treat it as such even when it's painful even when you're writing painful things and ripping your own emotional guts out remember that this is a gift and it is a joy and it is an act of kindness and generosity to tell someone else a story and to give yourself the space to tell a story the best successes I've had both artistically and commercially have been when I've embraced the joy of it. The most fun I've had as a writer is when I've embraced the joy of it, even when it's writing something really serious and intense, treating it like it's a gift. And with the seriousness, you don't want to give someone a crappy gift. So do the work to make sure it's a good gift you're giving someone. You're not you know, ringing the doorbell and leaving a flaming bag of poop at someone's door. You want to leave them something nice.
1: So put in the work, but never forget That is an act of kindness, not an act of torture to yourself or your readers. Love that, Alex. The last and most important question: Did you have fun today talking to us about your writing process? I did. This was great, and I know we, for those
2: listeners, we started a little late because my toddler was having a whole potty thing going on. So (laughs) we started. I was really feeling distressed and distracted, and this was just really thank you. I feel very (laughs) chill right now, and also. I'm in the revision process for the second book in a series, a middle grade series coming out next year called Battle Dragons, which is exactly what it sounds like. It is dragons that battle. It's the fast and the furious meets how to train your dragon, basically. And, you know, revision can also be hard when you feel like you're not really nailing it. And I've been struggling with this revision and just the chance to talk a little and remind myself how much fun this is and what a blessing this job is, is actually really good for me today.
1: So. Thanks for giving me the chance to remind myself what I needed to hear. Absolutely. For those listening, Gold Wings Rising, the third and final installment in Alex's Skybound Saga series, is in stores now. And just so everyone knows, that's Black Wings Beating, Red Sky's Falling, Gold Wings Rising. That's the trilogy. Alex, you've mentioned a few of your projects. Did you want to plug any or all the upcoming stuff that you can talk about?
2: Yeah, sure. What I can talk about is in Fall of 21. September 21st, 2021, the first Battle Dragons comes out. I'm actually super excited. I think adults will also dig it, even though it's written, you know, for 12-year-olds. It's action-packed. It's a cyberpunk dragon story. It's an homage to Akira and the Fifth Element and also, you know, dragons and The Fast and the Furious, which I actually love as epic storytelling. So it's kind of my tribute to all those things. It's a blast. I think readers of all ages will really dig
1: it. So keep a lookout for Battle Dragons next fall. Love that. What about your social media? Is there anything you want to plug? Twitter, Instagram, like, like, Leave so. all social media. <laughs> yeah,
2: I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. I'm not even going to plug it. Anyone who's interested can find me. I'm not that interesting on social media, so no pressure. But I'm also very findable. So I'll just leave it there. People will have to use their sleuthing skills. Awesome. There was for a while on Twitter an Alex London who was a hustler, a male hustler in London. And I'm not that one. He was a gay male escort who was into Shakespeare and Doctor Who. So like we could have actually almost been the same person, except I'm <laughs> not a sex worker. But I like, wanted to know this guy. But as a kids writer, it was a problematic name to share. But I think he's since left Twitter. I wish him well, but I'm kind of glad. Very findable. Twitter, on Instagram. I don't really keep up my Facebook because that's a giant evil company, even though I know they own Instagram and it's basically the same thing. There's a monster at the end of every piece of capitalism.
1: Yeah, I'm on all this stuff. Bye. Thank you if you're listening. Buy <laughs> books, check them out. Trilogy's out there, it's in stores. That being said, Alex, it's been an honor. Really fun Bye. to talk your process, fantasy, trilogies, all that stuff. And yeah, thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Have a great day. You too. And thanks to our listeners. We hope to see you next week.
0: Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McCleod.